As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Total Soccer Show and our world-famous weekend review. On this episode, we're looking back on a weekend where Mo Salah had the power and James Milner should have gone for an early shower. <laughs> oh, bad rhyming. Where Ronald Koeman showed his inner Donald Trump shouting on the phone, blaming others for a loss and somehow keeping a job way longer than he should have. And on a day where Milan oh so nearly blew a three-goal lead at Atalanta, we found out that Zlatan Ibrahimovic bought himself the most Zlatan gift of all time for his 40th birthday, a golden Ferrari. A very subtle choice for a very subtle man. My name is Ryan Bailey and joining me today is a man who better not be expecting a golden Ferrari when he turns 40, Taylor Rockwell. I mean, I was, I'm not now. Hey, buddy, it's good to talk to you all. It's nice to be back. It's going to be red. That's fine. All right. Uh, That's fine. I think that means my insurance goes up, but I guess if I'm getting a a gigantic sports car anyway, my insurance is going to go up. So it's fine. It's fine. I'll deal with it. Exactly. Nothing says midlife crisis like a golden Ferrari to me, Taylor. And I think uh, a red one is a bit more subtle for your taste. Wow. I didn't really think about how this is basically his midlife crisis vehicle. Yeah. That's outstanding work by you and less outstanding by Zlatan, I think. <laughs> anyway, less wow. Zlatan, more Taylor. How are you? How was your vacay? How was free soloing on El Cap or whatever you did last week? Uh, yeah, no, not for me. Not ever. Uh, I... I'm not, like, terrible with heights until I get to a point where I realize, like, you know, if there were an earthquake, I could fall off. I genuinely was concerned that maybe there would be a freak earthquake and I would go uh, tumbling off the edge of some of those mountains. But it was really wonderful. It was nice to be out in California, saw my mom, went to Yosemite, uh, and also stopped in in Kansas City and had a good time there. So it was nice. It was nice to uh, to get away for a moment, but I did miss you all, and I'm glad to be back and talk about some football and not be free soloing because uh, that is how nightmares happen for me. I've got a confession to make, Taylor. Whenever you yes, say sir. Kansas City to me, mm-hmm. um, there's a. I used to have a live recording of Limp Biscuit where Fred Durst over and over oh, again no. would say Kansas City Limp Biscuit Committee, and it was like that's such a terrible rhyme. Why do you keep saying it over and over again? 
goodness. I, I think there are larger questions to be asked about why you owned that recording, my friend. <laughs> it was 1999, Taylor. It was a different time. You, gotta give, you knew give better even then. You knew better even then. No, nah, I had. I would remember being, uh, I think it was a middle schooler, and playing their version of Faith, not knowing it was a George Michael cover, and my father sort of being very confused about both that song and also me not knowing that it was a cover of something. That blew my mind. Yeah, George Michael didn't like that cover very much, by the way. I imagine not. I imagine not. not. (laughs) (laughs) Also here with us, Taylor, is a man who doesn't uh, mark the passing of time with birthdays or Ferraris. He marks it with Watford manager firings. He is 674 Watford managers old, Graham Ruffin. Hello, Ryan. How are you? I uh, I spent my weekend. I didn't do any free soloing, and I didn't certainly didn't listen to any Limp Biscuit, um, and I also didn't go and see the Bond film, which a lot of my friends seem to do over the weekend. But I did watch a lot of soccer for a change, so I feel I'm well versed for this weekend re- review. Did you have a good Hang weekend? On. I had a lovely weekend. I wasn't aware there was a Bond film out. It's not as if there's been wall to wall coverage of said <laughs> fact, Graham. Yeah, yeah can we talk been... about that for a second? Yeah, it's, I mean, it, Ryan, are you this podcast James Bond actually? Uh, English oh. accent, like sports cars, lots of lots of uh, sexual innuendos, and I also saw you were at the beach at the weekend, so I can yeah. only imagine you recreated the famous uh, Daniel Craig scene walking out of the the sea. Have you got you you, um, you left off fundamentally flawed human being on your list? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well put. <laughs> but like, is this supposed to be? A particularly good Bond movie. I know it's. I know it's Craig's, or at least I believe it's Craig's last one. But is it supposed to be really good, or is it just that it's been delayed so long that now the expectation and anticipation has built to such an extent? I was worried, Taylor. I'm going to see it on Thursday. Mm-hmm. Um, Doctor Kermode of the BBC of the Film Review said it was good, and that's good okay. enough for me. If that's he, he right. says it's good. That's good enough for me. That right. is, is also my Mendes? gauge. So. Okay. Yep. All right. All right. Then I, I will roll with Dr. Whatever his name was, who sounds like he could be a Bond villain. <laughs> he kind of looks like a Bond villain, actually. See? When you think about See? it. He does. Yeah. <laughs> this is how it starts. He might be in the next one. It does seem to be that's the pattern they're going with. Was We need a new big guy who is overseeing the entire plan. I think it's also because we've not been allowed to go to like cinemas for so long, or certainly not in the, in the UK. And mm-hmm. so this feels like the first big release i mean everyone is just you know forgetting all about tenet um that never happened this is the first big release after the pandemic to get us all back to cinema i think that's also a factor <laughs> was tenet builders after the pandemic graham it was like a year a year and a half ago wasn't it yeah well chris Nolan was calling it early <laughs> <laughs> fair enough fair enough well uh, maybe maybe the potsos graham are bond villains of sorts having fired uh had, had some panic at the Zisco, shall we say, over the weekend. Zisco uh, Minos uh, sacked after 10 months in charge. He helped them get promoted last season. Seven points in seven games, not cutting the mustard at Watford. 16 managers since 2011. I think we had a conversation, Graham, on a recent pod about the, or there was a question on a listener question show about the effectiveness of firing managers regularly. Mm-hmm. Watford do take it to an extreme, don't they? They do, and um, I'm going to be honest, I feel like I knew next to nothing about Cisco, apart from that he sang the, the thong song. Um, beside, like, I feel like I hadn't got to know him, and he's gone already. <laughs> that tends to be the way it is with Watford managers. Like, I, I would have taken a, a few seconds, if you'd asked me last week who the Watford manager is, I, it would have taken me a few seconds to remember, and I'm not even kidding. They just they just come and go. They do indeed. Like buses, Graham, like Can buses. We- can we bring it back full circle? Because as we talk about Bond, it, like, is there a player who comes to your mind more quickly who has 
base their entire life off being a Bond villain more than Zlatan Ibrahimovic? Because I'm running through it, and like the man with the golden gun, the man with the golden car, I'm going to assume that Zlatan owns some sort of property on the moon, so there's probably a Moonraker connection. At one point, I guarantee we can find a time when he referred to his like ability to see a goal as his golden eye or something like that. But really, <laughs> there's a lot of, of Bond villain to the Zlatan Ibrahimovic persona. I think Sergio Ramos has got Bond villain written all over Ooh. him. He once put a Champions League penalty on the moon. Does that count? <laughs> it does and that's a great shout as well maybe maybe one of them is the henchman and the other is the uh the villain indeed uh one more thing before we get going today gents my, my favorite moment of the weekend we're going to talk about uh liverpool against manchester city because of course we are but there was the moment where um pep guardiola was rather angry at um, <laughs> james Milner not being sent off for a for a what should have been a second yellow card for a foul on bernardo silva he was furious, and there's a small clip which you can see online of sort of Mike Dean, who was the fourth official in the game, sort of just standing behind him, chewing gum, <laughs> looking at him with almost pity, while Pep went absolutely insane. Graham, was was that as wonderful for you as it was for me? It's a bit. I got the shudders of Schadenfreude when I saw <laughs> yeah. that. Yes, it was. It was. It was wonderful. And you remember last uh, week's. Um, listener questions we had a question about celebrity referees and I admitted that it was one of my guilty pleasures about soccer where those celebrity referees and nothing that Mike Dean did in that response to Pep Guardiola changed my mind <laughs> the best part was um, shortly after when De Bruyne scored the equaliser Pep angry celebrated yep. he still had the fury of the uh, of the incident the, the yellow card uh, non-yellow card incident but w- I've never seen a manager look happy but also extremely angry at the same time Joe uh, uh, Taylor's your name Taylor that's oh. fine you can call me Joe whatever we're the Americans oh, Joe he did. He did have that that sort of vibe to him, and I think a a younger, uh, less veteran uh, Pep Guardiola goes charging across to kind of celebrate in front of the fans who'd been yelling at him previously. But that would have brought him into Jurgen Klopp's touchline, and that could have been problematic. But I really liked his celebration. I also really enjoyed his frustration, fury about the lack of a red card because it's one of the few times I can think of where a meme. A, like from a from the same person perfectly fits the current situation. I know that doesn't make sense, but one of my favorite memes is Pep Guardiola screaming twice to the heavens. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, where yeah, he keeps yeah. holding up two fingers, and it just felt like that also applies here. Second second yellow card. He wanted that one. You could use that one too. Really, Pep is just the uh, the perfect meme generator. Is what we're learning. He is. He took the jacket off, so we knew he meant business. Uh, Taylor, <laughs> what's, what's the angriest you've ever been on the field or on the side of the field, Taylor? I get the impression, no offense to you, but I, I think passion might run high in you when you play. Yeah, I didn't realize that you're not supposed to scream because I had <laughs> a, a series of managers who coached by yelling. So I thought that was normal, normal until I had a, a me- very mellow center back partner in my adulthood, sort of lean over and be like, hey, man, you don't have to yell, you know. So you are correct. I, uh, passions do run high. I tend to get frustrated when calls seem to go the wrong way. I think the thing that will always make me angrier than most other things is when I'm accused of diving when I have not. Uh, mm-hmm. And there was one a couple – I still have the scar on my leg uh, from a couple seasons ago. A guy came in, studs up. My, I was bleeding through my sock, through the shin guard, which tells you how bad it was. Or excuse me, the shin pad for for you, uh, for you Thank Brits. You. And uh, and he and then he accused me of diving, and that one uh, set me off pretty aggressively. I did that thing where like you stand up and start to get into the guy's face, and then you remember like, oh, I'm actively bleeding, and the pain sets in. But for a minute there, uh, uh, anger at injustice uh, overrided the the bleeding and the pain. 
I had one. In, I, I don't generally get very angry on the field. I had one incident where I was one on one with a goalkeeper who body checked me, leading with his shoulder. Uh, do I don't think he was a seasoned soccer professional, shall we say? Was it and Anderson? Referee- <laughs> it was not Edison, but it was uh, Edison adjacent behavior. And um, I, yeah, the referee saw nothing wrong with it. And I was completely outraged. Graham, I imagine you're a bit more chill on the field. Yeah, my my ethos, my on-the-field ethos is similar to my wedding ethos. Uh, no emotion ever. <laughs> You'd make a good Bond villain in that case. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> All right, on that note, should we talk about some soccer from the weekend? We'll start off uh, with the Premier League. Uh, Leicester gave a 2-0 lead away at Crystal Palace to draw 2-2. Leeds beat Watford to activate the aforementioned biannual Watford manager sacking. And in the Moyes derby, Taylor, Man United couldn't beat Everton. Who boy, who boy, who boy, more Man United fun. Plus, um, yay. Ne- yay. <laughs> <laughs> Next summer, gents, Weezer are going to be rocking the London Stadium on the Hella Mega Tour. But Weezer already rocked the London Stadium this weekend. Um, Joanne, uh, <laughs> Loan Weezer, who scored the injury time winner for Brentford <laughs> in the 2-1 win. Weezer, Weezer, did that work? Anybody buying that one? Brentford in seventh? <laughs> I enjoyed it, but I'm not sure if it, if it worked. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking uh, about that one for so I long. Might- I might be taking the Watford route here on uh, on this podcast. We might have to look into uh, into, re- into replacements halfway through. We'll see how it goes. Oh boy, I've got to butt my ideas up then for Liverpool <laughs> to Man City two. Uh, we were also expecting this one, uh, Taylor, to be a pretty great fixture. It has a good history. This one. It felt like the kind of game that we'll be watching on Premier League Classics in 10 years' time. It had that real classic feel about it, particularly that second half. I thought this was a wonderfully, wonderfully enjoyable game, Taylor. I, I agree with you. I feel like sometimes the only thing that keeps the game from being that instant classic is when it finishes in a draw. Because I think oftentimes the late winner or the the fight back or the kind of holding on to a win also cements the legacy. But I think with the way this was really a game of two halves, to use that cliche, but then City kept fighting back without like the obvious goal scoring option that Liverpool found a way to sort of play their style of play the way they want to, but to change the the, the narrative on this game. The impressive nature of the goals, both individual and as a team, I, I think across the board. And then the pet moments we already talked about, I thought it was a great game. And then the fans returning as well really does kind of mm. elevate it to that next level. Yeah, it did feel like the fans really brought something to it. Um, it, it just you can, you can kind of tell on the TV, can't you, Graham? The atmosphere was definitely electric in that stadium, particularly in that second half. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're right, this felt like a, a classic to me, it was in the it was in the the quality on the pitch, the atmosphere that you see there, the tension on the touchline with Guardiola having a, an almighty tantrum, as we've already spoken about. <laughs> Even though there is that sort of respect between Klopp and Guardiola, and you saw that at full time with a, a pretty genuine kind of embrace between the two guys, it still has that this fixture and that rivalry still has that kind of Arsenal v United from the late nineties, early two thousands feel to it. Yeah, um, and we've said we've we've spoken a lot about. Chelsea being maybe title front runners and Man United having the potential to be title challengers this season. But when these two teams are on it, when Liverpool and City are on it, I still feel like they can produce a match like no other two teams can in this league. And that was the thing in that second half, I was thinking to myself, this couldn't be any other fixture than Liverpool v City in the Premier League at this time. And it feels like this is still the Premier League's defining fixture at this moment in time. And um, a week ago, on this podcast, we spoke about this Chelsea City game, and that was a game of such high quality that 
I kind of said, suggested that maybe it was a little bit dull. It was so well coached that it was dull as a spectacle. There was nothing about that. There was nothing dull about this fixture. There was still that air of high quality that the two, two teams were very well coached. But yeah, fantastic spectacle. And I enjoyed every minute of it. So, so the difference between that Chelsea Man City game, Graham, and this was it that there was a bit more space at the back, maybe a bit livelier in the stadium. What, what's the difference maker? I suppose it's one different team in it for a start. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, I think the two teams had deficiencies that the other exposed. So, Phil Foden was put on the left side to kind of expose um, James Milner with his direct running and his dribbling, and that worked very well. And Foden has actually become, for me anyway arguably the most interesting player in this Manchester City team. I wrote in an article after the game, he's become Guardiola's special ops player, as I called him. So whenever there's a job that needs doing in the attacking third, it's Foden who tends to get asked to do it. So against Chelsea, he was playing as the centre forward and his role in that system was to lead the high press and that worked very well. Here, he is, uh, he's on the left side to dribble at, at, at Milner, expose him as often as, as he can and that worked very well. That was the source of City's two goals in this game. And City were often a feature of their play would be to kind of um, pull the play over to the right side, create the space on the left and create the one-on-one situation with Milner and Foden. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was a very clear game plan from them to, to kind of have a go at Milner. As you say, he was very lucky to stay on the pitch. Mm. And I always think it's an admission of guilt from the, the manager of the player who should be sent off when that player gets subbed off immediately afterwards. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Which is what happened with, with Milner and Joe Gomez coming on. But Liverpool also did a good job. They, they struggled in the first half, to be honest, Liverpool. And to, to be honest, I thought, they were hanging on towards the end of the first half. City really should have have scored a goal there. And it felt like that narrative of City need a centre forward was coming to the fore again. Um, but Liverpool then in the second half stepped up. They were targeting, they played quite narrow in, in the in attack, particularly in the second half. And they were targeting that front line with direct uh, passes from, from deep, particularly after Matip kind of stepped into the midfield. To, um, and that was a real feature of their play. So I felt like both teams were better going forward and maybe that is the biggest difference from the Chelsea City game where Chelsea were they didn't play at their best but they were probably still at their best in the defensive side of the game they struggled in the attacking sense yeah um Taylor I think on the NBC comms I think it was Lee Dixon who said words to the effect of going into the first half uh, end of the first half he said something like this is where Klopp earns his millions of dollars where he gives this incredible team talk to try and turn this around and get something out of this game in the second half and to because it was a, a very Man City dominant first half of course and he presumably gave the world's best team talk to get Liverpool coming out like they did uh, I, I think he probably gave them a team talk about bravery and about pushing forward. And I think there probably was a need to just be a little bit more aggressive or maybe a lot bit more aggressive while still being defensively solid. And I think there was maybe an awareness that the fans would respond to that. And so if you come out in the second half and you do step forward, you push numbers higher up the pitch. I felt like, especially near the end of that first half, Liverpool in a very kind of compact 4-5-1 almost and and more focused on defending, defending the flanks and keeping number central than they were creating attacking opportunities. And in the second half, I think they did push higher up and keep numbers higher up and that let Fabinho have a little bit more space to operate. And I think that was important mm. as well. So I think there was probably a motivating challenge and a few tactical adjustments. And that's sort of what you want in a halftime speech. It's three to five sort of bullet point workable things that everybody can get behind and away we go indeed and uh the 76th minute graham 
Mo Salah steps up with one of the great goals that we'll see Incredible. this year, if not in several years. I just can't get over how good the finish was, how it came from nothing. Is he the best player in the world right now? That's the kind of conversation with that's uh, being bandied around after that goal, after that performance. And it, the, I think his contract's up in 23 and Liverpool fans just saying, give him all of the monies, all of the monies, please. <laughs> yeah, I read that uh, it's been reported today that he wants £380,000 a week, which is only £30,000 a week more than what David De Gea gets from Manchester United. So I would say that's oh. probably uh, yeah. probably worth it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Taylor. Um, but it's is he right. the best? Is he the best player in the world right now? I that's always a very open-ended question. There's a number of criteria, but I think it's fair to say that in terms of attacking output this season, only maybe Karim Benzema is up there with with Salah. He's he's been incredible, and in, in this game. He won 11 duels, which was the joint most. He had nine touches in the opposition box, which was the most of any player. Five take-ons completed, that was the most of any player. Four tackles made, that was the most of any player. Three shots on goal, that was the most of any player. Two big chances created, that was the most of any player. One assist, one one goal. That is how you influence a match. And it, as you say, his goal wasn't just a normal goal. Um, and it, it was it was a goal that only... I don't think there's anyone else in the Premier League who has the combination of skill, strength, single-mindedness who could pull that sort of that goal off. I don't think anyone in the league could do to could do that. And um, yeah, he was he was incredible in this game, and he just turned it on in the second half. All of a sudden, it was like, okay, time to go to work. I'm just going to destroy Manchester City because <laughs> obviously, for the first goal as well, it comes from him beating yep. Cancelo and then mm. skipping past Cancelo and then playing the perfect pass for Mane. He was. He's just been incredible in recent weeks. This this is not an isolated performance. He's been at this level for a number of games now. I was going to draw attention to that to that first goal because it is sort of Liverpool. I would say just optimistically, maybe if you want to be kind, just putting the ball up the pitch and hoping that somebody gets on the end of it because there is that city high press. And it's the Salah advancing blur is what I would like to sort of dub this, where he doesn't. I think he's not even in the picture when that ball is cleared or certainly not when it's kind of approaching midfield. And yet he's able to hustle back. He makes a play on it. He ends up winning it. He turns, he drives forward. As you said, he gets past Cancelo. He plays that ball in, but he makes that play happen from not necessarily start to finish, but almost, almost both of those things. And I, and I think that alone would have had me gushing about his performance. But then that goal and just how calm he is, how he backs himself, how he knows that he can make something happen here. And it felt like that Liverpool of old, the Liverpool vintage performance of, I don't know, two years ago, basically. I guess that could be vintage. <laughs> uh, just the sort of the rapid fire combination, quick counter attack, but then the individual performers making something happen when they need to. I, I think there is a world in which Liverpool win this one 2-0 or 2-1 to and, and the takeaway is like, they're back. I think that City are able to fight their way back and keep this one to 2-2. Is both impressive for Liverpool, but also simultaneously impressive for City. I thought um, Salah obviously had a, a pretty game-changing performance, but the other standout player for me, gents, was Bernardo Silva on the other side of things. He, he, you know, there's those sharks that if they if they stop swimming, they die. That was what I felt like Bernardo was. He was he just never stopped moving in this game. He never stopped contributing. He you know the whole up play was great. He was rele- He was doing those De Bruyne style releasing players all the time. Kept Henderson and Fabinho under wraps should you say that assist he gave to or almost gave to Jack Grealish was 
incredible yeah. Grealish uh, shouldn't have taken the touch and um, might have buried that one uh, false nine uh, uh, Grealish we should probably get to that in a second but but Graham um, Bernardo I thought was incredible in this game and in in a game where yeah but De Bruyne was good and he he was doing those great through balls as he does but he wasn't quite himself maybe in the first half and it was Bernardo who kind of stepped up in that midfield for me I totally agree I thought Bernardo was was brilliant and he's he's had a brilliant season and, and it's weird to me that City Maybe this wasn't Guardiola making this decision, but it's weird to me that City seemed open to selling him in the summer because if I look through the City squad and think of players who are Guardiola-type players, Bernardo's pretty close to the top of the list. You know, he... In this game, I think he was quite commonly on the left side of the midfield three. Obviously, he does a lot of drifting, but then against PSG, he was on the right side. He can play as a false nine. He can play on the left or the right of the attack. He can do so many different jobs. He's a Swiss uh, army knife of a player. And... To me, that is kind of the epitome of Guardiola as a coach. So it's been surprising to me that they have been so keen to to, to get rid of him. Obviously, they, there was talk they were trying to fund the, the Harry Kane transfer. But mm. yeah, you're right. This this was a performance that illustrated everything that he does for City but on both sides of the ball as well. You know, he's a very he's a very good presser out of possession. He 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 doesn't give opposition players much time. He's obviously very technically able on the ball. He's got low center of gravity. He's deceptively quick as well. He, he kind of is, as I'm repeating myself a little bit, kind of the complete Guardiola midfielder. And yeah, he was very good here. Taylor, when the Man City team sheet came out, it looked like, oh, Pep's not done any tinkering here. He's he's done a straightforward lineup with players in the positions they should be in. And then Jack Grealish steps up in the false nine role. We're like, okay, yeah. all right, there he is. There Pep's he is. done a thing. Pep has done a thing again, guys. Um, what did you think of Grealish in that role? He obviously could have finished better from the aforementioned uh, chance that Bernardo, Bernardo put on a platter for him. Is it is it that he's... He, he's trying to messify him. He thinks he's messy in some ways, and he, he he thinks he can be this versatile player, as indeed I suppose Pep does treat all of his forward players. But he tries to make them versatile, tries to fit into different positions. Yeah, there, I think there's probably something to that. I think in that he wants Grealish to understand the system and the intricacies of that system, but then also be able to express his individuality. And I think that's why after the game, Pep seemed pretty pleased with the result. And I don't think that was just him kind of putting on a good show, praising his players and then tearing them apart in the locker room. I think this is a team that is evolving, that he is trying to kind of figure out how to get the best combination play out of them. And so I think with Jack Grealish, doesn't have the most impressive game and maybe a more veteran goal scorer puts some away earlier and we're talking about a different game. But that's not the case. And they didn't get Harry Kane. They didn't want to go after other options. So I think now we have Pep Guardiola trying to experiment, trying to put pe- people in Different situations where it's required, like Gabriel Jesus out on the right. I thought he might be central in this one, and that was obviously not the case. But then Jesus looked good and is obviously instrumental in the uh, first goal for Man City with a good kind of slaloming run uh, into the center of the pitch. Uh, And then for Grealish, I think it was probably more learning and more opportunity to grow. And I don't think it was a great game for him, but I also think Pep is probably okay with it when you're getting results against a team like Liverpool. I think that's also why this was a... Um, on balance was a was a, a better result for City than it was for Liverpool. Obviously, I'm maybe stating the obvious there because they're, the, they're the away team, but this felt like Liverpool being back to their full form under Klopp. It felt like yeah. this is Liverpool at their best. And it still feels like, going on the back of what you're saying there, Taylor, it still feels like Guardiola's maybe figuring this team out a little bit this season. Mm-hmm. And yet they go to Anfield and they get a point um, against one of their, their main title challengers. So... 
what happens when Guardiola, which he tends to do, it's not out of the question that, sorry, it's not unheard of that City start seasons slowly. Um, it happened last season, of course. He tends to come up with the answers. So how good yeah. is this City team going to be when they come up with the answers this season, when they're already in the mix at the top of the Premier League and winning away to Stamford Bridge and getting points at Anfield? That's quite a frightening thought. Yeah, it reminded me, Graham, I don't know if you stayed up till the very end of the Tampa Bay-New England game last night, but the the commenta- commentators were praising New England's performance and basically saying that this is a team that is going to get better every single week and midway through the season is going to be much better than they are right now. And they were fine last night, but I think that's Man City as well for me, a team that are sort of figuring some things out. There were players in this squad that they did probably want to leave or were okay with leaving that are now still there, but are now still being incorporated and seem to be pretty happy on the whole and getting in good performances. So I feel like this will be a a team that as they go figure out who needs to fit where and how to fit some pieces together. And I think maybe this return fixture is a stronger performance from them in what was already a strong performance. Did you just compare Man City to a New England sports team and not the one owned by Fenway? Yes, I did. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. Just checking that. I tried. I I, I think this was the the game where I, I... fully decided that I've wasted my money betting on Man United to win the title. <laughs> uh, you know, as good as teams are on paper, they're not quite anywhere near the, the standard of these two teams and Chelsea who are above them in first place in the Premier League. Any more on this one before we uh, hit the continent, Graham? Nope, I think we covered it all. I'm Taylor? just shocked that it I'm just shocked that it took you until October to realize that that was a wasted bet. <laughs> I like to I like to play the long game and I like to be positive about these things. But this weekend, I was like, yep, I wasted my money. Right. How superstitious are you? Like, if you place that bet and then, I, like, obviously you weren't going to a betting parlor. I'm assuming that was online. But if you had and you turned around and, like, a bird pooped on you, would you just immediately be like, well, that was a bad bet? Like, how, how much do you let other factors factor into your uh, wagering? Uh, if a bird pooped on me, that's good luck as far as so I'm uh, told. So they so say. That would, that would be a good bet. Um, I am pretty superstitious, but not terribly superstitious, I think is the fair answer to that. You're a little stitious? It it will play on my mind. Semi-stitious. I'm semi-stitious. There we go. Yeah. (laughs) All right. And on that note, we're going to take a very quick break. We're going to come back with some games from the continent. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, we are back. Uh, it was a weekend, Taylor and Graham, where Bayern Munich, PSG, Real Madrid and Barca all lost on the same weekend. The winners of this weekend, the friends we made along the way. Um, <laughs> why don't we move to La Liga first on our, our little roundup here. Uh, back to 100% capacity in the stadiums for the first time in 18 months. Real Madrid went top, uh, but only on goal difference after the aforementioned loss uh, in Barcelona at Espanyol. Uh, the game we're going to talk about, though, gents, Atletico Madrid 2, 
Barcelona nil. An easy win for Atleti in the end. Uh, only two shots on target, I believe, Barcelona had in this one. Uh, the star of the show, one of the stars of the show for Atleti, uh, scorer of the second goal, a sister of the first goal, Luis Suarez, who did not fit the Ronald Koeman project at Barcelona, <laughs> Graham. He must have enjoyed this one. Yeah, I, I love how Suarez, after he scored that goal, he did the whole muted celebration thing yep. for a little while, you know, obviously scoring against his former club, a club he's been very successful as, at, and then he did a big show of doing the phone gesture with his hand, which to anyone who doesn't know was signifying how Coman called Suarez to tell him that he was being sold by Barcelona to Atletico Madrid. He didn't even meet him in person. So it felt like... Uh, duality of Luis Suarez in that moment (laughs) and his celebration choices. I thought the same thing because when I first, when I watched it live, I saw that celebration with the hands over the head pushed together and I thought it was this like being very humble, I'm not celebrating, I'm just sort of enjoying the moment. And watching it again, first it reminded me of uh, Michael Bluth and Arrested Development where he thinks that that's a gesture of humility but it just makes him look (laughs) a little bit pretentious. But watching it for the third time, my takeaway was that that was actually Suarez essentially in a way like passively saying like I am so thankful that things worked out and here I am scoring goals and so then the the phone call gesture that happens makes a little bit more sense in that like maybe it wasn't so muted as much as it was I'm being passive aggressive to outright aggressive yeah and uh, Ronald Koeman furiously on the phone at halftime from his uh, executive box or wherever he was he wasn't on the bench he was suspended for a red card uh, for this one Um, suspended um, for being bad <laughs> for being a bad Barcelona manager. The official so, official explanation. Yeah. <laughs> well, his suspension long may continue on that front then, Graham. This was <laughs> I think I tweeted uh, I tweeted out uh, or quote tweeted the Barcelona starting 11. It just looked very underwhelming. I know mean, they've got injury issues at the moment of course, but it you know, you could kind of tell this wasn't going to be a classic Barcelona performance just from that 11 that went out and you know, they're 2-0 down and Sergio Roberto is brought on. He's the answer here, apparently. Yeah. And it was Nico, uh, Nico Gonzalez who came off, who got a, a verbal, uh, some a verbal abuse in the media from Koeman after the game as well. It was just the the, the Atleti midfield, Graham, they, they just were allowed the ball with no pressure most of the time. What were Barcelona doing here? Yeah, this this was um I would say complete domination from Atletico Madrid, but that kind of that kind of suggests that Atletico were were incredibly good. I don't think they were even that good. They just controlled this match from start to finish because Barcelona had very little to offer, even to the point that in the second half it felt like Atleti were just coasting through, they were just going through the motions. And it, that's pretty damning for Barcelona and where they currently are as a team. Atleti, I've said before, they have the strongest squads in La Liga. This was another show of this. You know, Griezmann starts on on the bench even after his goal against AC Milan in the Champions League. Yao Felix plays up front against, uh, alongside, sorry, uh, Luis Suarez. And Simeone definitely made the right call there. This was arguably the best I've ever seen Yao Felix for, for mm-hmm. Atletico Madrid. He was everything that they signed him to be. He conducted a lot of their attacking, uh, attacking play alongside Thomas Lamar, who is also becoming the player that Atleti signed him to be. He helped create overloads in attack. He was drifting from left to right. Um, driving through the middle, had a hand in both goals. And I just think it's ironic, going back to Griezmann, that as soon as he returns, the player that was signed to replace him when he went to Barcelona appears to have find, found his groove in his role for Atletico Madrid. So that, that's not so good for Griezmann. But yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Barcelona, distinctly second best in this match. 
you look through their team, Sergino Dest, who has probably been one of their better players this season. He's playing at left back, which is not his best position. Mingessa playing at, at, at... Is that a contentious thing to say in USMNT circles, Taylor, or...? Uh, not anymore. Uh, I think I think people did not love his uh, latest couple outings uh, for okay. the Eastman's national team at left back. Right. Okay. So for for Barcelona, he's definitely better at right back. I can't say I've yep. seen him much for USMNT, but yeah. So Mengetha Mengetha at right back, uh, not his best position either. Nico Gonzalez is as young as is uh, Gavi. Both very promising players, but thrown in at the deep end here. The player that was most disappointing in this match was Coutinho, who was played in a system that should favour him in his preferred role which is in behind a central striker with a little bit of freedom to drift out to the left given that Gavi likes to to kind of come central and the match just completely bypassed him so at this point (laughs) I don't know what you do about Philippe Coutinho because he's playing in a team in a system that should should suit him and he is just completely anonymous he feels like 160 million euros just completely flushed in the toilet. Graham, when you just said that he was the most disappointing player, I just scrambled to my notes. I was like, did he, did he play in this game? I had no idea. <laughs> Seriously, I forgot. He's that shot wide. Yeah, that one good shot. How oh, are we yeah, going to forget that's that true. one? Yeah, <laughs> lest we forget. But uh, uh, Taylor Bar- Barcelona had 70% possession in this game. Nine yeah. shots to Atleti, six. But still, so, just so, so poor at the back. It just seems like mm. the fundamentals were missing here. Like, Lamar, for the first goal, no one seemed to be picking him up there. It was like a six versus three, and they still got the better of better of Barcelona at the back there. It's just forgetting to pick up players, players being out of position. It's almost as if they're not playing for their coach or something, Taylor. Yeah, or that they haven't been given instruction uh, that would be necessary for playing against Atleti and instead are sort of coming in with this with a Seinfeld-esque, I'm Keith Hernandez, we're Barcelona, how dare you? Like, <laughs> Barcelona seemed to just be like, you, you are obviously going to back off and let us have the ball and do what we want, and then maybe you'll counter, but we're Barcelona. And in the lead-up to that first goal, I took a screen grab of it. You can see three different Barca players not knowing what to do defensively. Frankie de Jong, most notably, puts his hands up in the air and looks around like, am I supposed to be going? And I think that's a good like exemplifier of what we're talking about. That it's Frankie de Jong in a four-two-three-one now playing like right wing, sort of, but then still playing centrally, but not knowing his responsibilities, not knowing where he's supposed to be defensively. So sometimes he tracks back, but then is clearly supposed to step high to apply pressure. And then when he leaves the player that he tracked, that player is now open and gets the ball. And it was just confusion across the board for Barcelona. And for Atleti, it felt like intentional confusion that sometimes they're high pressing, sometimes they're sitting off, sometimes they're overloading the wings, sometimes they're keeping numbers central, sometimes it's both of those things. And I think Atleti had a very sort of nuanced and multifaceted approach for how to deal with Barcelona, whereas Barcelona, I think, I would not use the word nuanced to describe anything about this team. I would say confused and without ideas and pretty weak across the board. It's not just that it's Suarez and Griezmann, but if if, if you flip these and I told you, or if you were somebody new coming in and I said one of these teams is historically the biggest team in Spain and the other is the sort of scrappy overachiever, and you looked at these rosters, you looked at the lineups, you looked at the money spent, I think you would think Atleti were Barcelona the, with the, the, the personnel they have, the money spent, the quality on the field, and just how comprehensively good they were despite not having the ball. Maybe that's the difference. But I thought this was a game where, for me, Atleti showed that they're going to win the title. And maybe that ends up, we got a long season, maybe that ends up being a ridiculous prediction. But I just think the talent they have and the way they combine, Thomas Lamar tracking back, but then, I mean, 
sprinting 70 yards and then still playing an inch-perfect ball over the top to Suarez. You have Suarez's composure for that goal. I just thought it was it was so good from Atleti and so poor from Barcelona. It's it's not a ridiculous prediction, I don't think, by any means, uh, to say Atleti will win the title, Taylor. But is it an indictment on the state of the league right now that they are very much a contender, having you know had 30% possession with a back five at home against this Barcelona team? It's not the most expansive and... well. Uh, yeah, I mean, the thing the thing that I would say is that theoretically it's a back five. I would say their base shape was more of a three, two, four, one. And with that four were Llorente and Carrasco, who are theoretically your wing backs, but they pushed them so high up the pitch. And I think the idea there was to basically make Barcelona's attacking fullbacks or attacking fullback and Mingueza uh, stay stay further back. And then the times that they did uh, venture forward, the, the second goal, I think, comes with Mingueza high up the pitch. I think it's Coutinho. No, it's Depay loses the ball and then away go Atleti because now there's a giant amount of space to attack. So I think there was there was a sort of, again, a variety to where those wingbacks were setting up and what they were trying to do. But yeah, Ryan, all that said, I take your point that it is still maybe a sign of where things are. Also a sign of where things are. Football Weekly were pointing out that when... Uh, we have our next El Clasico. It will be the two former Everton managers uh, <laughs> <laughs> coaching e- either oh, team. Dear. And then the even more ridiculous thing, which I realized, is that there's there are rumors that Kuman yes, will be sacked and that Roberto Martinez will be hired, which means we'll have two of the most three of uh, three most recent Everton managers in charge. So either way, Everton involved in La Liga this season. Not a sentence I expected to say. Not so much. Not so much. Uh, Graham, <laughs> a final question for me on this game. I, I got a, a, a good hypothetical question, which I've stolen from the interwebs, from the socials. Okay. Who would win if the clubs swapped managers and played each other again in a month's time? Uh, Barcelona would win with Simeone in charge, in my opinion. Because this is the weird thing about this Barcelona team is for... No matter, like, they have been very bad recently. <laughs> I was looking for a more analytical term there, but very bad <laughs> does the job. Um, they have been very bad recently, but you go through the, the core of players that Barcelona have. You know, Ter Stegen is still one of the best goalkeepers in the world. Ronald Araujo has recently become the dominant defender at Barcelona. He's still managed to have a good game here, and he tends to play well every single week, even if Gerard Piquet doesn't, and he didn't in this game. Pedri, Frankie de Jong, Ansu Fati. You know, Sergio Busquets can't do what he used to do, but he's still an important figure in the centre of this this team. You know, even Memphis Depay has had a good start to the season. There is a core of players in this in this Barcelona team that that could sustain certainly a title challenge and maybe even one of the, the better teams in Europe at this moment in time. And that's I just don't get the sense that Coman is the man to take that core and make anything meaningful meaningful from it. Obviously, Simeone as Barcelona manager would be a dramatic departure from what we expect from Barcelona, but he's a good coach, and I just don't really get the sense that that Coleman is a particularly good coach. And I think even if he's even if he's not the usual Barcelona manager, he has the Bielsa intensity and the like. This is all we're doing. This is what you should be caring about. And I think. Sometimes that personality is what you need. And so to have somebody coming in who is very set in their ways, this is how we're doing it, this is how it's going to be, maybe there are some people who are dissatisfied with that approach, but I think 
the larger group of players is going to buy in because that's what it requires. And when you have somebody who's very passionate and expecting you to be equally passionate, I think it can end up amplifying the energy and getting the results. Whereas if there's kind of consistently debates about, is this what we're supposed to be doing? Is this the right approach? Is this the right formation? I don't know. I think if you don't have that intensity behind it, I don't know if it sort of gets the job done. So I think Simeone, if nothing else, brings that uh, Bielsa-esque, I shouldn't say insanity, I'll just say intensity. And I think some of the players respond that I think the results are definitely better. Well, it looks like Kuman's keeping his job for the time being, he says, as Kuman is fired while we record this podcast, probably. Um, but, you know, the, the international break is now upon us. So he's got, uh, certainly, it seems, a stay of execution at Barcelona. I, I will be honest, Ryan, before we started recording, when you made your Ranieri joke, uh, I thought for a moment you were saying that Barcelona had appointed Claudio Ranieri, and I got a little bit nervous for them. Oh. I'm glad you remember that and not my Wiesa joke, which I'm still reeling about. It was poor delivery. Must have been. Must have been. That was a good joke. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's move on to the Bundesliga very quickly. Bayern, uh, they're still top. And as we mentioned, uh, they did lose this weekend. Uh, a shock 2-1 home loss to Eintracht Frankfurt on Sunday. Their first defeat under Julian Nagelsmann. First home league loss in two years. Uh, Borussia Dortmund kept the pressure on with a 2-1 home win over Augsburg. RB Leipzig, winning ways, hey. return. 3-0 win over Bochum, who are not very good, but a 9-0 aggregate uh, win <laughs> over the last two home league games for Jesse Marsh's side. Taylor, maybe we keep this guy around for a little while longer. Maybe the uh, the panic about the situation there was uh, misplaced. I mean, yeah, I, I think it probably was. I will say you are correct that this is Bochum, who are uh, 17th in the table, so it's not like they were maybe title challengers that said a win is a win but i think uh for some u.s fans to see tyler adams playing uh right wing back once again uh that also did not work for the u.s last time we saw that so maybe there will be some uh concern about that one but i think less so about the the nature of the result a three no win always a positive why are you so determined not to play sergino dest at right back or right (laughs) wing back I mean, that's a question for Greg Berhalter, and I would love for right, you to okay. get to ask him. <laughs> um, I I don't know the answer other than that we haven't really had a ton of depth at left back, unlike Scotland. Uh, so I think maybe Anthony Robinson playing better for the U.S. means that we will see Sergio Dest as a right back, we, which means we will see Tyler Adams central. We also we have another left back doing really well. It's becoming a bit of a joke. Aaron Hickey scored against your local team, Ryan Lazio. Uh, and uh, he put <laughs> they're your team aren't they uh, and they uh, he, Ryan he loves played... Lazio <laughs> Aaron Hickey plays at left back which is becoming a it's a, becoming a joke not a very funny one yeah I they are, funny. they're a local team but not my team can I have that uh, put on the record officially please <laughs> gents uh, yeah but that, that was good stuff over the weekend and League R meanwhile Timothy Weyer getting an assist for Lille in a 2-0 home win over Marseille PSG lost for the first time this season at Rennes that was a 2-0 yeah. loss as well no shots on target Graham for Neymar Messi and Mbappe who were all on the field Eboy yeah, I watched this one live. I was I was working this game. Uh, this result had been coming. You know, PSG had had won I think eight straight league gun games to start the season. But I've watched a lot of them in the league this season, and a lot of those games they've not been very convincing. Neymar and Mbappe both had really good chances to score in this game. Bla- the Neymar one in particular is astonishing. He's a few yards out and he kind of blazes it wildly over the bar. Um, but the most damning thing for PSG from this game was that. After going 2-0 down at the start of, of the of the second half, 
it, there was just very little sense of a comeback coming at all. And they went out with a whimper. There was just absolutely no fight in them at all. And it, it just adds to the sense, obviously, it's all speculation. We don't really know what that dressing room is like, but it just adds to the sense that there's, there's something not quite right in the, in the environment and the, and the atmosphere in that, in that team. You just, this is another match that, and another result that just kind of adds to that sense. Do you think they need to spend more? <laughs> yeah, yeah. A few hundred million euro more will that, that'll do the trick. Yeah, I'm I'm reminded of the onion joke about how like the New York Yankees just purchase a ten game winning streak and insert it directly into the standings. I feel like PSG are just going to literally purchase wins at some point. But I, I Graham, I, I'm wondering what you think of the idea that this is maybe it goes back to the idea that Ligue 1 is not going to be the end all be all for PSG. That after such a comprehensively good win as i understand it uh versus man city that there's always going to be like a difficulty in getting up for the challenge and it's a shock loss for sure but this is a psg team that have played nine games and have 24 points so extrapolating that this loss aside they've won every single game they're six points ahead even with the loss it feels like maybe that's why there's not that fight back is because i like it doesn't defend it necessarily but there's an idea of like eh, why why risk hurting ourselves when we know we're gonna stroll to a five no win next game and we'll be better rested for the champions league like i think that's kind of how i see some of these results yeah and and the difference last season was you had a maybe this is going slightly over the top but you had a leicester city-esque rise of a team who played well beyond themselves in lille And this season, there's just no sense of of any team doing that. You know, Marseille no. are a lot are ten ten excuse me ten points off PSG mm. already after only eight fixtures. Monaco are, are are similar. Lille have dropped off dramatically. There's not really a challenger that's emerging. So PSG can afford to have this this sort of result. It's just if it ten if the performances like this and the atmosphere seeps into their Champions League form, then that's when it becomes a problem. There's already True. been a sign that that has happened. You know, they drew they drew away to Club Brugge in their first True. game. So. Indeed. Are we right. are we officially going with Brugge? Is that what it is? Has In Bruges lied to me? Uh, locally, it's Brugge, right? My understanding is it, and this could of it is that this could be completely wrong. But because of the part of Belgium that they're in, they tend to ah. lean more towards the kind of Dutch side of pronunciation, mm. whereas a lot of the rest of Belgium is the French side of pronunciation, which we would say Bruges, but the Dutch kind of uh, influence would have it as Brugge. But I could be totally, totally wrong and talking complete nonsense there. Always a possibility like on this podcast, Graham. That's all I say. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the caveat that comes with everything I say on this podcast. <laughs> all right, uh, uh, Brugger, Bruges aside, uh, we're going to take a very quick break. Start thinking about the code TSS for no particular reason. We'll be back shortly. Hey, folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show, reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early. There are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
Total Soccer Show, we are back. We are talking Serie A. Napoli remain on top uh, after a 2-1 win at Fiorentina. Juventus squeaked a 1-0 win in the Turin derby uh, against Torino. A late Locatelli goal there. Mourinho's Roma back to winning ways with a 2-0 home win over Empoli. Uh, the big news, of course, from the league is that Zlatan bought himself a goal Ferrari, but we've covered that one already. So why Obviously. don't we get to Atalanta 2, AC Milan 3. Kind of a derby, Bergamo's about 20, 25 miles away from Milan and Atlanta have, been, have played their uh, Champions League games at the San Siro, of course. Um, Graham, what did you make of this one as an overview? seemed like a good, balanced game to me. It seemed like when Milan were 3-0 up, that would have been harsh on Atlanta, at Atlanta. Yes, it was. And I actually felt they had a lot of um, good play in the first half, talking about Atalanta. They forced uh, a couple of good saves from uh, Mignon and the, the, the AC, Milan, AC Milan goal. But... Individual errors really cost them, particularly the one that was made for the second goal, Sandro Tonali, which he kind of nicks the ball and 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 then and finishes for the, for the second one. Sandro Tonali, by the way, I had him down in my notes for the Champions League review, but never got round to talking about him. So I'm going to take the opportunity to mention him today because I thought he was really good in this game. He had a difficult first season at AC Milan last season. He um, arrived with a lot of hype, but didn't really live up to it. Well, we're seeing what that hype was about this season. He's been compared to Pirlo because I think maybe because of the hair and the Brescia connection. He obviously played for Brescia before going to AC Milan, but I actually think he's a lot more like Daniele De Rossi or Gennaro Gattuso. And you saw that in the way that he he won the ball for that second goal. He has a lot of technical ability, but he also has that drive and tenacity that makes me think of De Rossi and Gattuso. So um, he was, this was another game that proved to me how he is growing into a dominant midfielder for AC Milan alongside Frank Kessie in the, in the centre of the pitch. And yeah, it, he was one of the players that was the difference for AC Milan in this game, even though Atalanta did play some nice stuff and obviously there was that comeback in the second half as well. Uh, Graham, just adding to the list of um, soccer players whose kids go to the school my wife works at, Daniel De Rossi is also on that list. I just wanted to Ooh. mention him because of that tattoo he has on his uh, calf. Do you remember that tattoo of the... Uh, the Warning a player, danger. Yeah, it's like a player getting tackled. Yeah, it's bad. <laughs> did, I, did I ever tell you all about the interview I did with a, a young academy player for Roma about Daniela De Rossi? Like, it was just a question I asked him, and I was totally wrong, because I had the idea that De Rossi is this sort of, like, terrifying, intimidating, Roy Keane-esque presence. Go on. And what did he say? Like, okay, I wasn't sure. Basically, like, completely opposite. Like he's really, really friendly and very, like a, like a fatherly figure who always advises young players and like sits down and talks it out with them and helps them make decisions and figure things out on the pitch. So he has this like Viking, I will destroy everyone in front of me persona on the field and then off the field appears to be this very avuncular gentleman. So there the you go. I- Maybe Daniela De Rossi should be the next James Bond. I see. <laughs> I see. I feel like it fits. He's Italian yeah, James Bond. I can see that. The thing I like about Daniela De Rossi is he did James the Bondini. thing that I – yeah, James Bond. The thing – um that he did the thing that I would do if I was a player and I'd kind of made my millions and done my thing with one club my whole career is he went and just played for an interesting team. He went and signed for Boca Juniors and so he's a good guy yeah. in my book. That's an interesting transfer and I don't know why more players don't do that sort of thing. Like why don't you get Cristiano Ronaldo going to play for, I don't know, FC Cincinnati? Okay, that's a bad example, but you know, uh, <laughs> it, you know it what rhymes I mean. with It rhymes with shmoney, I think. Ah, uh, yes, of course. Yeah. Yes, yes, uh, yes. 
I'm not going to say any more on that subject. But um, uh, Taylor, what did, you, what did you make of Milan in this one? Being touted as a, a Scudetto uh, a candidate. We've got an exciting young team here, which is weird to say when you've got Zlatan and Giroud on the books, but they are an exciting young team uh, playing well. They're, they are fun to watch, and I'm not sure I've said that about them in seasons yeah. gone by. Uh, yeah, it was an exciting game and a kind game from Milan because Atalanta prior to this one had been struggling to score goals. There was much speculation that they would continue to do so in this one. So Milan, once they knew they were safe with the 3-0 lead, letting Atalanta get two goals to give them some confidence I thought was pretty nice of them. But overall, <laughs> I thought it was a really, really strong performance from Milan, not just because they go up 3-0, but because similar to Atleti, I thought there was just so much variety to how they wanted to play and players popping up in different positions. How often Teo Hernandez found himself with time and space centrally yeah. after sort of evading Atalanta presses and evading like man marking obligations to still get 10 yards of space all around him I thought was really interesting and showed how well drilled this team is and how many different ideas they have to how they want to attack I thought AC Milan essentially beat Atalanta at their own game so when you're talking about Teo Hernandez driving through the center that was in my notes as well because that happened time and time again that's quite similar to what Myla does for Atalanta they were AC Milan were also brilliant in transition as you referenced there Taylor lots of good movement in the attacking third ball carriers and kind of breaking the line and that's a lot of what Atalanta do and I think a lot of teams who go to Bergamo and play Atalanta they try and contain them they try and sit back absorb pressure and it doesn't it doesn't really work against Atalanta so I thought that was one of the the good things that Pioli did was he kind of embraced that his team were going to have to go toe-to-toe with Atalanta and just trust that they would have the quality to beat them and in the end they did. They did go toe-to-toe, Graham. Uh, on CBS, they described uh, Atalanta as organised chaos, which I quite enjoyed. Uh, just, you know, the, the, the press was so high, everyone was pressing. Even Musso, the goalkeeper, was pressing and managed to press the ball into Calabria's path for the first goal as well, <laughs> unfortunately. But what did you make of Atalanta and their, and their uh, organised chaos? Uh, yeah, as I, as I said at the start, I thought the certainly when they were 3-0 down, that was that was harsh on them. They, they created some good opportunities and... and the it wasn't a surprise to me that they did come back towards the end of the match. I loved the the the, the little finish from Pasalic for Atalanta's second goal, which obviously looks like a, a very easy finish, and and it could have been a very easy easy finish. But he doesn't he doesn't blast it as as um, yep. he's unmarked at the back post. He kind of waits and then waits a little bit more for uh, Mignon, who as I say has been who's been brilliant for AC Milan this season. And he just kind of clips it in at the at the near post. I just really liked that finish. But it, they just gave themselves too much work to do by going 3-0 down. It was the individual errors that cost them. I don't think there's there's too much for them to be worried about. I, I don't think they're going to be title challengers. I think AC Milan, maybe even Napoli, who, have, who are the only team in the big five leagues in Europe to have a 100% record at, the, at this stage of the season. So wow. maybe Napoli are title contenders. I think Inter will be up there as well. Juventus... Uh, difficult to tell with them at the moment. But uh, what I'm saying is I, I don't think Atalanta will be title challengers, but I don't think they have to worry about sliding far uh, down down the mountain. I think they're going to be up there this season. It's nice that Serie A is so open, isn't it? There's not one dominating team at the moment. And this, there's, uh, Taylor, there's like at least three teams, as Graham says, who could take this this season. It's a pretty exciting time to, to be watching Italian soccer. I mean, I think Juve fans would disagree with you, but I would disagree with them, and I would agree with you. There we go, convoluted. Uh, Because, yeah, it it is really fun, and it's fun to have different teams, historically big teams, but then also teams like Atalanta, who have become, I think, like one of my favorite teams of late for 
the variety they do bring for the organized chaos. I was always very sad when Papu Gomez left, but they seem to have kind of continued on as they have. I disagree with Graham a little bit that I think with how strong Napoli have looked, how good Milan have been, and then Inter continuing to be Inter, and I would expect them to be in and around that sort of top four conversation there's not a ton of Champions League spots left. And really, you've got a resurgent <laughs> Roma team. You've got a Juve team that you would expect to be in and around that top four place. I, I have a feeling we might see Atalanta fall out, but I don't think that's even the worst thing for them. I don't think they're a club that necessarily buys and spends based on being in the Champions League. So I think even if they were in Europa League or worse, they will continue to do as they have been and find value and then flip that value for... 50 to 60 million and continue to reinvest and get stronger. So even if it does end up being a down season, I don't have major concerns yeah. about Atalanta. No, that's that's 100% fair, Taylor. When you go through the teams that are up there, that they could just fall out through a process of, of elimination. But I, I don't think it will be because, to, to rephrase slightly, I don't think it will be because they're a bad team necessarily. It will just be that maybe others are, are better than them. And if you look across Europe this season, just Ryan, when you're mentioning kind of the, the title races there, that as we're going through this podcast, it feels like it's quite open in a lot of the the big five leagues. You know, the, the Premier League, it feels like there's um, four, maybe that's down to, to three teams now that could could win the title. So, sorry, Taylor, there's a lot of stuff coming your way in this podcast. <laughs> um, you know, Spain, uh, Real Madrid and Atleti are tied on points at the top of the table. Real Sociedad are up there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we've just gone through Italy there as well. So, well, we'll just leave out the Bundesliga <laughs> and Liga from this discussion. But still, to have three multi-team title races from the five leagues is, is pretty decent. I don't leave out Liga, and I think PSG might do it this year. <laughs> you never know. You never know. Um, okay. Well, uh, talk about um, scrappy upstarts. Yeah. Well, talking about some title races, why don't we take it over to MLS, where uh, things are nearing their conclusion in the regular season. Nearing uh, the Eastern uh, in the Eastern Conference, the draw between NYCFC and Nashville meant that New England clinched that number one seed in the conference, sixty-five points. They can break LAFC's twenty nineteen record for single season points, which was seventy-two. They're not far off of that one. Atlanta uh, are outside the Eastern Conference playoff places right now. They were leapfrogged by Montreal Club de Football Montreal, who beat them two uh, one in the West. Sporting Kansas uh, second. They got a four-two win over Houston. The Sounders stay top in the West, though, with a 3-0 win over Colorado. That Jao Paulo goal. Maradona-esque. Anybody see that one, Taylor? I did not, but I did uh, see the tweet from, I think, Matt Doyle, or maybe it was a lion in his kind of uh, weekend roundup, that Seattle uh, treated this game as though they were offended that Colorado were only three points behind them in the table, <laughs> and that is no longer the case because they uh, put this one to bed pretty early and pretty resoundingly. Indeed, they did. The game we're going to take a quick look at, though, gents. El Trafico, LAFC 1, LA Galaxy 1. This one going up against Tom Brady's return to New England, the aforementioned, uh, which I think you said you watched Taylor over this one. Is that right? I had it on in the background uh, on mute because I couldn't handle the Tom Brady adoration. He's fine. He's a good quarterback. I don't know. I don't know if we needed a whole, like... Tom Brady's return, uh, 24 hours or 72 or I don't know, however many hours of coverage. But yeah, that was fine. But I, I, I think, uh, also helped spell the final 30 minutes of El Trafico, which was not the most exciting, uh, I have to say. I think maybe they knew they were up against Brady's return to England and they thought, yeah. let's, let's not make this a bonkers 3-3 draw. Like- let's just split the points and get out of here. 
It's like when uh, I think in the in the season finale of or series finale of Seinfeld when like I think I think it was Cartoon Network just aired like footage of an open door for thirty minutes. They were like, <laughs> "We know you're not watching us. Like, go watch Seinfeld." <laughs> like maybe maybe that was what they were trying to do. That was nice of them then, I guess. And I understand the last episode of Seinfeld was very good, right, Taylor? Oh yeah, oh, yeah, resoundingly yeah. so. Everybody loved it. Not controversial at all. Very popular. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, the, well, NFC went up uh, one one nil in this one with the Mabadou full header from a corner after eleven minutes. Beat three defenders to the header as well. It was yeah. Pretty impressive Ooh. stuff there. Uh, he's I, he's um he's eighteen years old. He's looking pretty good. Is Mabadou full? He is Sega Kulabali looking less good. Uh, I watched this one again to try to figure out why Fall is so wide open. And it's Kulabali who tries to make a play ahead of him and can't uh, end up making any sort of connection. So he's out of position there. But he's out of position because he thinks he has Fall marked, Kulabali. So he takes a moment to do that thing you often see players do where they take the, the bottom of their jersey and lift it up to wipe the sweat off of their face. And he's literally doing that as the corner is taken. So then it's kind of, I'm flying through the air right, right now, panic mode. And and that's why I think he doesn't make any any semblance of a play on the ball. That's why it's a goal for fall, but it's also a good header and a good 1-0 lead for LAFC. I just enjoyed that individual moment. Uh, eight minutes later, the equalizer came from Samuel Grandsir. Grandsir. Great, great surname. Love that. Uh, really good Victor Vasquez assist from that one. Uh, Graham, your thoughts on this game? LA Galaxy hit the Woodwork a couple of times. I think LFC did as well, at least yeah. once. Um is is it too grand to compare the Galaxy to Man City in that they had the chances but didn't take them, which seems like a classic Man City pattern? Um, I feel like that might be overstating how the Galaxy played this one. <laughs> um, after 18 minutes, when it's when it's one all, you're thinking, here we go again, because obviously this fixture just has a tendency to produce absolute mayhem, and it was shaping up that way again, and that's why w- when we're thinking about the games that we might talk about on, on, on this week's weekend review, this was, was definitely up there, but it kind of just petered out a little bit towards the end. It, it, it felt like... As Taylor was referencing there, the, the kind of the last thirty minutes, it felt like neither team was really playing with much attacking intent. The two um, the, the two times that the Galaxy hit the, the the woodwork in that second half, they come from crosses into the box. So I'm not really sure that's a a reflection of 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 how they were playing. And it just it just felt like this was a result that really didn't do either team that much good. The LA Galaxy just continue to to kind of limp towards a, a, a playoff place and, and the LAFC have still got a lot of work to do and the opportunities for them to build some momentum to pull themselves back up over the line and into the postseason, those opportunities are running out. And this was a game where they, they could create that momentum and, and it just didn't really happen for them. So this wasn't a bad game by the usual standard of soccer but by the standard we've used for El Trafico matches in the past, it was one of the less memorable ones. Yeah, it was John Champion and Taylor Twelman, I believe, on the broadcast. And around like the 70th minute, I think the phrasing was the fluency has gone from the game, which is a gentler way of saying it's not a very attractive game at this point. And I think the question then for Twelman was which manager will be more pleased with the draw? His answer was, I think maybe both of them. But even there, I think he didn't really believe that one himself nor did John Champion and I think it's because it's like both managers wanted the win but also did not want to lose and Graham I think your your point is pretty sound that this could have been this motivating kick on moment and here's how we go for the rest of the season 
But I think also if you risk being too aggressive, getting caught out, and you lose the game, then the opposite is true. And now you've dropped points to your rival, and things seem bleak all over again. And so I think neither manager was like happy with a point, but I think neither manager was willing to really roll the dice to push for all three points. And so we got what we got in the end. Is it fair to say that the Galaxy were neither shaken nor stirred with J-Bond in goal? There we go. Anybody? There Anybody? we go. Anybody? That's, that's good work by you. And you were that's good work by you, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, I'm still a little bit bitter that nobody laughed at James Bondini as my Italian James Bond, but whatever, it's fine. I see how it is. I see how it is. Ha ha ha! There you go. Is that, hey, that all, right, we, all right, Weezer. All right, you know what? They can't all be gems. All right, I think it's time we get out of here on that note. Uh, thank you very much, Lister, for indulging us on another weekend review. Taylor Rockwell, wonderful to have you back from VK. Thank you very much, sir. Genuinely wonderful to be back. I, I missed you guys. I miss getting to talk about soccer. And it's nice to come back from vacation and not be dreading things, but being excited to talk to you all uh, this morning. Oh, thanks. Graham Ruslan, hugs and kisses to you. Blah, no, okay, bye, right. <laughs> <laughs> bye! <laughs>